Good afternoon to the European colleagues. Uh, good morning to Latin America and American friends and colleagues and good evening to the Asian, including me. So this is uh, the eighth uh, edition of the ProTalk of CompNet and uh, you, know, you are welcome to, to this. This is going to be a joint effort uh, with the CAF uh, of uh, Latin America, Caracas, and, uh, and uh, there is uh, Manuel Toledo and Lionel Lube that are going to tell us what the CAF is all about and what the program is going to be about for this uh, Pro Talk. Manuel, why don't you take the floor? Thank you, Filippo. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Manuel Toledo, uh, economist at CAF Development Bank of Latin America. And uh, I'll be your host. Uh, welcome again to this eighth edition of Productivity Talks. And uh, we have a, today we have a great lineup and uh, we're going to be focus focusing on Latin America, productivity on Latin America. And uh, I'll be, uh, let me share my, the, the, the program. Uh, so first, We'll have uh, Professor Marcela Slava, again, full professor at University Universidad de Los Andes uh, in Colombia. And she's going to talk about uh, her work with firm level data and what we can do with that. And then right after that, Filippo will comment briefly about what ComNet does and how we can extend what they do to Latin America, hopefully soon. And then we'll, uh, we'll go to uh, our, our two panelists. Uh, first, Alvaro Garcia Marin, assistant professor at Universidad de los Andes, but in Chile, uh, which is a different institution. And he's going to present his paper about product level efficiency in multi-product plants and that's going to be about 20 minutes and then we'll have a 15 minute uh, Q&A you can pose your questions uh, you can raise your hand to ask questions after that uh, well during the Q&A uh, session and we'll let you know and later so we'll have uh, Nicolas de, de Rue assistant professor at Universidad, Universidad de los Andes, Colombia. So he's colleague with uh, uh, Marcela and he'll present his work about resiliency of exporting firms in Colombia after a very particular trade shock. And so let me uh, 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 stop sharing and i think we can start now with uh marcella you have 15 minutes please go ahead thank you very much manuel and uh, hello everybody um let me share my screen so more than than uh presenting my my work um what, what I want to do today is uh, tease uh, people's interest in working on Latin, with Latin American data on Latin American issues 
uh, uh, using the different microdata sets that that uh, we have out there. Um, uh, Filippo will be talking about this, but uh, you'll see that there is an ongoing effort uh, where uh, CAF is taking the lead uh, jointly with CompNet to try to extend CompNet's work to Latin America to be able to uh, have a unified data set of moments on productivity and firm dynamics issues using the different data sets from uh, Latin, uh, Latin America. Um, uh, so basically, basically what I want to do is uh, talk a little bit about the, the micro data that there is in Latin America and, and the kinds of things that we've done uh, with the type of work that CompNet uh, is already doing for many countries in Europe and, uh, and other places. Uh, so that's that's basically the idea. Uh, I, I think we are, we have some participants from uh, Latin American statistical offices. So I also want to give a brief introduction uh, about the, what this kind of work uh, uh, is trying to do. The, the starting point uh, that, of course, uh, brings us together today is the fact that there is a lot to learn uh, when we uh, are able to characterize the distribution of productivity using microdata, that is to understand how different establishments uh, are characterized in terms of productivity and, and other dimensions of, of their activity. Um, and, and this is particularly important for developing economies because there is a lot to, le to learn about development using these distributions, the dispersion of productivity, how it correlates with other uh, uh, features uh, and other attributes of firms, uh, the way that firms grow and how that relates to their productivity is crucial to understanding uh, development. Uh, and, and in that task, the ability to compare across countries can also tell us a lot. The, the sole micro focus, has the, the frequently the problem that, that we need to uh, zoom into uh, a very specific dimension and the lack of, uh, of possibility of comparing with say other countries uh, and, and bring a more macro perspective uh, frequently uh, has the problem that we are only able to identify how a difference is um, or, or different behaviors uh, that are not uh, easy to relate to different institutional features that only vary, for instance, across uh, countries. Um, so, so that's basically the, the kind of thing that we want to do that, of course, needs access to uh, microdata. And the problem that many of us face uh, very frequently is the fact that it, it is not easy and sometimes it is not even possible to bring those different data sets uh, together given the, the existence of uh, strict protocols uh, of uh, confidentiality at statistical offices. And so uh, it is frequently the case that a single researcher cannot simply put all these data sets together to be able to compare across countries. And that's where these idea uh, that I think first was first pushed by, by uh, Eric Berlsman and, uh, and John Halteranger and Stefano Scarpetta uh, many years ago of uh, what they called the distributed microdata analysis. It, it, and that was basically the idea that a single researcher or a central team 
could propose protocols for data processing that will occur and differently in different countries, independently by different researchers uh, at different facilities. And uh, the, the basic idea is that that central team learns about what these different data sets are, what their characteristics are, the science protocols that make that data com comparable, and that implies some data cleaning, uh, making inclusion thresholds comparable uh, to have the, the greatest comparability, uh, comparability possible. Uh, and then uh, distributes codes that carry, that execute those cleaning protocols uh, and, and also generate comparable statistics. Uh, and, and those uh, codes and protocols are sent to country teams who are the ones that independently in different countries with, uh, different, with, with the different, for instance, statistical agencies, uh, execute uh, those codes and generate the statistics that are then put together. And so the kind of thing that you, you may end up with is, for instance, a data set uh, of sector level statistics, including first, second moments of the, the productivity distribution and the distribution of other attributes of uh, firms or plants, uh, and even some multivariate moments that uh, uh, may be uh, very uh, challenging. That's the basic setup uh, that many of you, all of you who are uh, related to CompNet know this uh, by heart, uh, and many other people uh, may also be related to it. Um, and, and what I want to uh, emphasize today is that uh, the fact that this is indeed very possible in Latin America has been done in Latin America. And, and the, the additional difficulty that we uh, need to overcome is just basically to uh, be able to make this a recurrent thing, something that we uh, can set up with of, uh, uh, hopefully the participation of the statistical offices themselves so that these can uh, continue occurring and will enable us to have a tool to uh, not only characterize, but also uh, follow Latin American economies in terms of the behavior of, of uh, firms and establishments and uh, uh, productivity growth. Um, so, um, to summarize what there is already that people have worked with in terms of this comparative uh, distributed microdata analysis, uh, there are surveys of manufacturing in Latin America as in many other uh, countries around the world uh, that are uh, quite good, uh, quite, quite high quality. So manufacturing censuses, many of which are census-like for at least a good part of the population of firms or establishments, um, exist in at least Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, Mexico, and Uruguay. These are annual surveys. Uh, though there, some, there are some changes in methodology over time such that uh, you cannot use a full time series, even, uh, even then there are relatively long series for, for all of these countries. Um, most of them cover uh, firms or establishments uh, that have 10 or more employees. That's the most frequent inclusion criteria. And as I said, starting at that threshold, many of them are, uh, are, are in, uh, in fact censuses. And as with other manufacturing surveys, they uh, report things such as sales, employees, capital stocks, uh, the finest book values, et cetera. 
Some countries also have services, uh, surveys of services and retail or wholesale. Uh, in, particular, in particular, this is the case in Ecuador and, and Colombia. The, they are particularly important because uh, in terms of the economic structure of these countries, Latin America is not that different from uh, say the, the US or Europe in terms of the big distribution of uh, across sectors, uh, services as in uh, the rest of uh, middle income and high income countries uh, take up the most uh, share of our economic resources uh, in, in all of these countries, uh, over 60% of them. And so uh, this is a particularly important side of the economy to characterize. On the other hand, the surveys are more restrictive in terms of the subsectors that they cover and the inclusion uh, criteria. And even though some of these surveys can be uh, used online, uh, there's online access to microdata in at least Colombia and Ecuador. Uh, this is uh, true only for uh, anonymized data. And the reason I have this in quotations is I, I want to stress the fact that this is not simply that the identifiers are removed, but uh, procedures are carried that sometimes may affect the, the distributions that we want to characterize. And that's the reason that even for these countries, uh, uh, many times it is uh, useful and important to access directly the data sets that are subject to confidentiality uh, restrictors, restrictions. It is also the case that uh, the public data sets do not have uh, all, of the, all of the variables. So uh, with that, uh, introduction, I just uh, want to briefly give you a couple of examples of things that have already been done uh, using microdata, this uh, distributed analysis, uh, distributed microdata analysis uh, with Latin America. And, and those examples are one, the, the, the one chapter on the anatomy of productivity in CAF's uh, 2018 report uh, called Institutions for, uh, for Productivity. Uh, and the, in the, before that report and, and for that particular chapter, we run uh, distributed microdata analysis using manufacturing surveys for Colombia, Chile, Mexico, and Uruguay and the Colombian services uh, survey. And uh, as I said, the basic idea was to try to give a big picture of what of the anatomy of productivity and in that sense characterize the proxy uh, causes of the productivity gap vis-a-vis the not the YS, but the US, I'm sorry for the typo. Um, and so that's that's one chapter. Uh, then there is a background paper that uh, I'm, I'm currently working on with Marcela Melendez and Nicolas Urdaneta uh, with distributed uh, microdata analysis uh, on market concentration uh, in, in relation to inequality in Latin America. And that uses data from the manufacturing surveys of the same countries that I mentioned before, plus Ecuador. Um, and, and in fact, uh, Alvaro, who's going to be presenting, is, is involved in that effort here, is uh, leading the Chile team uh, running these, uh, this analysis. Uh, and so very uh, briefly, just to show you the kinds of things that, uh, that uh, we were able to conclude out of this, uh, of these analysis uh, in the anatomy of productivity in Latin America chapter, uh, we did things such as running 
Hauptinger, Forster, Silverstone, kind of the compositions of productivity growth. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with this, this is basically uh, the idea that you can decompose uh, aggregate productivity growth here in this uh, in this uh, uh, chart that I, that we are seeing. This is aggregate for an average manufacturing three-digit subsector um, or three-digit sector. And, and the, the aggregate productivity growth is decomposed here into components that are internal to the, to the establishments. In this case, the observations are establishments. Uh, external to them in the sense of uh, being of, uh, of implying reallocation and, and uh, changes in the shares of revenue represented by the different establishments that remain and then an entry exit component which is the lighter uh, um, line here and, and I guess the, the one thing I, I wanted to call your attention to is the fact that the, the black line, which is the aggregate, uh, very much follows closely the gray uh, dark line, which is the internal growth. And that that uh, is uh, an important feature that we highlight in the in the report because the focus uh, for Latin America, as has been the case for many other countries, uh, given the very influential work of, of uh, Chiang Tai-chi and Pete Clinot, um, has been on reallocation and uh, the fact that uh, the within component is so important in terms of the of the uh, uh, time series is one feature that we highlight and in fact um, we also highlight the fact that in terms of just decomposing the gap with respect to the U.S. it is the within component that that overwhelmingly explains things, uh, and that's something we conclude from these olipake is the composition, where we uh, characterize the, the covariance between uh, the revenue shares and uh, productivity. This is the traditional olipake is uh, allocative efficiency component. We do that across sectors and across establishments within a uh, three-digit sector. And what we find very much in line with what other people have found, and, and this is, for instance, something that uh, Bartelsmann, Wanger, and Skirpeta did in their own analysis, their own first uh, distributed microdata analysis is comparing these covariances, or we find that uh, the, the contribution of allocative efficiency is smaller in Latin America than it is in the US. These are log-based uh, log uh, TFP measures. So uh, we're talking about uh, uh, things such as uh, uh, 10 uh, log points differences, uh, 20 log points differences, that, that's the type of magnitude. But as other people have also been uh, uh, suggesting, uh, in terms of allocative efficiency across subsectors, uh, the the U.S. Uh, uh, has uh, displays a very uh, mild, if, if and if anything, negative uh, contribution of that component to overall productivity. Whereas in in, in these la three Latin American countries that we have here, uh, that component is positive. And uh, doing some magic to back out with that. That means uh, what we end up finding is that these overall gap uh, in manufacturing overall productivity where the by 2010 uh, Latin American productivity was about 34% of uh, the US's would uh, be uh, closed only by about 10 to 12 log points if the external components were equalized. Uh, uh, Sorry, Marcelo. 
you have uh, two minutes, please. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm about to conclude. Thank you. So that's one example of things that, uh, that we've uh, done with this. Again, ba basically to try or to conclude that the within component, within productivity growth, despite the fact that there is indeed poor allocative efficiency uh, in Latin America, the within component is particularly important. And then moving on to these more recent work on uh, concentration and inequality, uh, uh, one of the things that we've been seeing in these data sets is that different measures of concentration and measures of market power uh, here, markups in the, in the bottom panels, do not display in Latin America the increasing trend that uh, people have been characterizing for the developed uh, uh, world. And uh, that despite uh, this being the case, uh, where in sectors where there is an increase in concentration and market power, what we see is that uh, largest firms end up with higher markups and uh, with uh, um, reduced uh, labor shares. So in that uh, sense, there is still the same kind of concern that other uh, that we've seen for other regions, even though the overall trends are, are not identical. So uh, just to, uh, to close, uh, as I said, a distributed microdata analysis is not only possible, but it has been done in Latin America. And, and I hope to have teased your interest in, um, in carrying it uh, uh, for the future and, and the interest of, of, of those of you from statistical offices in collaborating in, in this effort. Key insights uh, may emerge uh, from that. Uh, but of course, the, the challenges in access uh, remain up to this point. These efforts have uh, depended on the dependent on the interest of researchers uh, and it sometimes has not been possible uh, to carry them in some of the countries importantly Brazil which is uh, clearly the the, 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 the largest uh, economy in the in the region thank you very much thank you Marcela um, so now Filippo uh, can take the floor yeah, okay. Can you, can you see my screen? Can you see? Yes. But you see it very small or, or is okay? Well, it uh, seems it, okay it, to me. Yeah, okay. So maybe you put it uh, in a speaker view so that you can see my face and uh, uh, company in a nutshell. So I was, you know, very pleased of uh, hear Marcela, you know, I knew the story, but I think she was very convincing that uh, you know, we need and we can have a Latin America component. So let me tell you what is component in three, four minutes. So we'll be very, very fast. We are a forum for productivity research, so conference uh, training, uh, but also we are a creator, a generator of a top standard, the firm level based data set of productivity drivers. Uh, our members include the major uh, institutions in Europe, seven statistical offices, uh, 12 EU central banks, and our members really use, not just for research, uh, just once and for all, but systematically for policy and research, our data set, which is available to all the members. This is the very important difference that we have, say, of an experiment like multi-prod OECD. We don't do it only for research, but we do it also for policy and systematic. So we encourage also to have uh, new uh, researchers and please consult our data set 
know, website to see how to access our data. What is our data? Well, we have at, at this point 19, 20 countries uh, uh, for the period of 2000 to 2017, productivity indicators, which are generated as Marcela was mentioning, using firm level data that were, which are available at the country level and then sector aggregated. In the table, you have the countries that are included on the left and the macro sectors. All the indicators, however, are actually two-digit level. So we have two, 20, uh, 60 sectors or so, so both manufacturing and services. Now, uh, what are these uh, uh, variables? Well, we have plenty of productivity indicators as well as uh, drivers of productivity. So productivity, financial, trade indicators, because we match our business uh, registered data with the customs data. We have competition, as Marcelo was mentioning, indicators in this of firms concentration and so on, and labor, and labor market indicators. We keep improving our data set with new variables. So recently, we put firm entry and exit, export by destination, energy cost. And previously, we have added the zombie firms and a very important regional dimension within countries, as well as intangible proxies. Now, we have an eight vintage going on, so which will be uh, including uh, 2019 and 2020 data for certain countries. Uh, we have uh, uh, done lots of improvements, uh, like running times is going to be 70% less. So if there are statistical institutes, don't be worried that it's going to take too much of your time. It's going to be very, very easy. We computed that in general is about two weeks of time or one, one full-time equivalent. So it's not really a big deal for the advantage you're going to get. We added one country, Malta, and new variables and joint distributions, and we improved in general the entire setup. So trust that we keep having lots of dedication in terms of improving the quality as well as the comparability across countries of our data set. Let me conclude with one slide and one idea of possible collaboration. We have been starting recently uh, a COVID state aid and productivity research, which is a cross-country work. The research question is, are COVID firm subsidies supporting the right deserving firms? So the data we are going to use are available for certain countries, are data on wage subsidies and rent subsidies, COVID related in 2020. And with the firm identifiers, we, we will link subsidies to the raw data used by the country teams for the period of 2015 and 2019. The methodology very simple. We will be clustering the firms before the COVID, the 2015-19, and then across a certain sort of dimension, big firms, productive firms, zombie firms, startups, and so on. Uh, and, and then we will be basically using simple OLS and logic analysis in order to see the relationship between individual COVID subsidies and the firm results, right? The outcome will be, and again, this is uh, uh, just to make sure that uh, they're not afraid of statistical institutes, they're going to be again uh, micro-aggregated indicators. So we will be using firm level data we will be using the network to produce this uh, new statistics, but they will be aggregated at the, at the uh, micro uh, aggregation uh, as, as a standard of conference. So it would be great if uh, some Latin American counterparts, both 
uh, you know, academics as well as statistical institutes will be participating in this project. So just a drawing the, the stone and hopefully someone will keep it. So join us, that's the bottom line and look into the www.comp-net.org. So Manuel, you have the floor now to continue the, the, the discussion, please. Thank you, Filippo, and for your initiative, and we're glad to uh, support it uh, here at CAF. So, and yes, join us, please. Uh, so now uh, we have uh, uh, Alvaro Garcia Marin. As, as I said, he's going to be presenting uh, a paper about uh, multi-product efficiency uh, and in Chile in particular. So you have 20 minutes, uh, Alvaro, um, please uh, go ahead. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Manuel, Filippo, and Liam for inviting me to, to the workshop. Um, so just uh, one warning, my internet is not working very well today. So I might need to stop the video at some time if, uh, if, I, if you stop uh, listening to me. Uh, this paper is joint work with Nico Wittlander. And in this paper, what we do is trying to understand product level efficiency in multi-product plants. Okay, so just to motivate the talk, um, let, me, let me start uh, discussing what we know about multi-product plants. So now we know that uh, multi-product plants are quite important. So in particular, multi-product plants tend to dominate world trade and they're very important for also for world output. Now, in theory, uh, there are recent developments that suggest that multi-product plants offers a, an additional margin of adjustment to face uh, you know, external shocks such as competition. And in particular, what happens is that if you think that multi-product plants has products of, that, that firms reduce with different efficiency levels, then when they face competition, for example, they can, in theory, uh, focus their resources, concentrate their resources in their best performing products and, these, uh, and as a result, for example, competition will raise firm level productivity because firms will use their, their resources, material, labor, et cetera, in the product that they produce more efficiently. Okay, so now in theory, um, this core competence is based on efficiency. Right? Now, what is difficult is that in, in practice, you don't have, I mean, it's difficult to derive measures of, of plant product level efficiency so what people typically does uh, or has done is to use uh, sales of each product as a proxy for, um, you know, for the core competence within the, within the firm. Of course, there are some recent developments. So here I have to say that Emmanuel Dine with, uh, with co-authors has a recent paper where they, they propose a methodology for deriving uh, physical productivity at the plant product level. And also Scott Orr has a, another paper, but, uh, but in general, we don't know much about these patterns of efficiency within, within plant of firms. So what we do in this paper is to use a unique data set from Chile, micro-level data, that offers the opportunity to derive uh, efficiency, efficiency measures at the plant product level. Okay, and the key contribution for now, and this is what I'm gonna do in this talk, is to, deriving a series of new facts that can be used to evaluate both the assumptions and the implications of existing models. So in particular, what I'm gonna do in the presentation is to provide a number of stylus facts that I'm gonna group in, in three different groups of, 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 of results. Okay, so first, 
Uh, I'm going to show you evidence that confirms central assumption in models of multi-product plants, and in particular, that firms seems to have a plant-level efficiency draw. Okay, so despite of the fact that firms may produce a number of products, okay, so what happens is that you typically tend to see that firms that uh, that has a very a very efficient product they tend to be also very efficient in all remaining products that they produce. Okay, so that's gonna be the first stylus fact. Second, we're gonna try to provide some evidence when, uh, of the consequences of using sales and physical productivity to measure, to, to rank products and to define the core competence of the firm. And then we're gonna show that when you use both, uh, both measures to, to rank products, then you're, you may get different results in terms of the patterns that you see at the firm level. And finally, in terms of this, uh, this discussion of within plant efficiency gains, we see that when firms are facing more competition in, in, in external markets, what they tend to do is that is, 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 is essentially they, they concentrate their sales in their best performing products. Uh, and this is gonna happen both if you use physical productivity to define the core competence, and also if you use sales to define the, the core competence. But however, if you use, for example, revenue productivity, um, which is affected by prices, then you don't get this result or that, that firms tend to concentrate their sales in their best performing products, okay? So I'm gonna skip the literature because I, I want to, to try to, to convey the main message of the presentation in about 20 minutes. Uh, but of course, there is a, this paper is related to a number of papers. Uh, for example, there's a recent paper of, uh, of Marcella and John Haltivanger where they discuss the drivers of, 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 of firm growth. And this is quite related to that paper. I'm gonna try to make a, a parallel to, to this literature uh, throughout the presentation, okay? So this is the plan. Um, I'm just gonna briefly explain how do we compute, you know, physical productivity, uh, markups, margin costs at the firm product level. Then, uh, only one slide in terms of data, and then straight to the results. The paper has also uh, a model that I'm not gonna discuss in today's talk because of time, uh, but I'm gonna try to discuss at the end, uh, you know, the main elements of the model. So what do we do? So um, these are the main variables we use, okay? So of course we also use uh, firm sales. I'm not gonna discuss that. So I guess the, the most important point is here in terms of physical productivity. So what we do is we, we compute this at the plant product level, okay? Um, and just to, I'm not gonna go in, into a lot of details, but uh, so we do two, dif two different things. First, uh, we use, of course, uh, output in terms of physical units, and then materials, uh, we deflate materials with the plant-specific input price deflators. So in this way, uh, the efficiency measures we derive are not, uh, are not affected by input or output price biases. Okay, um, now what, one important thing that, uh, one important challenge that you face when you derive, uh, when you want to derive physical productivity at the plant product level is that you need to know how each input is assigned to each output. Okay, and this is not typically available in most data sets. So what we do here uh, is that we use a unique feature of, N, of the uh, Chile manufacturing survey in which the plants report how much of the uh, total variable cost are being used or consumed in different products. So they, they tell in, in average how much labor plus material expenditure is used in each product. So in this way, we can assign uh, you know, labor materials to a specific uh, output, 
Okay, so in this way, we, uh, we compute physical productivity. And of course, what we do here is not mentioned, but we follow uh, the Locker, Goldberg, Kandeva, and Papnik uh, to identify the coefficients of the production function. Okay, the, so there is a lot of details about this in the, in the paper. Now, once we have productivity, and, and in particular, the, the, the output elasticities, we can derive markups uh, following uh, the Locker, right? right? The Locker, Jan de Locker and Frederick Barsinski. Uh, and in particular, what we do is that we compute markups at the ratio between output elasticity uh, of, a, of a given a flexible input and the, and the inputs expanded to chair. And then once we have markups, the marginal cost can be uh, simply computed as the ratio between price uh, to markups, right? So that they, uh, in that way, we can recover marginal cost and revenue productivity uh, we follow the same procedure with, with physical productivity, but instead of output uh, and physical inputs, we use materials, uh, material expenditure and uh, total revenues, okay? Uh, and we use the same coefficients. So that's in terms of the main variables. Let me now jump briefly to the data. Um, the data we use is the, the ENIA, which is uh, the, the Tillian Annual Manufacturing Survey. Uh, it covers the universe of manufacturing plant with at least 10 employees, okay? And it's gonna be available from 1996 to 2007. Uh, it has standard plant level information such as uh, size, uh, you know, number of employees, revenues, materials expenditure, uh, capital stock in terms of the, the book, their book value. But in addition to that, it also have information on the value and quantity of all inputs and outputs used by the firm. Okay, um, so this is very similar to what you have in the in the Colombian annual survey of manufacturing. Actually, uh, these are like a, uh, you know, the, the, if you if you if, if you compare the formularies are very are very similar the questionnaires. Uh, and, and in terms of the product information, in in addition to the total value and quantity, we can have we know the variable cost for each product. Okay, so in terms of of number of observation, we have about eleven thousand. Uh, plant product observations and about 12% of them are exported. Okay, so I'm not going to have time for for showing you a lot of you know uh, summary statistics. Uh, I just want to show uh, one table where we compare um, you know the Tillian data with the with the US data. Okay, this is, this is essentially the paper by Bernard Redding and uh, Redding and Chad. Uh, so in terms of the uh, what the the percent of multi-product plants we have. A similar number to the United States, who have about 50% of the of the plants are multi. Sorry, uh, this is in terms of uh, revenue, I think. Uh, so, um, so these numbers are quite similar to the United States. And in terms of number of products, that gives you an idea of the granularity of the product classification. We have about the same number of uh, of products produced in multi-product plants than in the United States. Okay. So now uh, in the last uh, 10 minutes or so, I'm gonna jump to the results. Uh, so the first uh, set of silas facts, as, as I mentioned, is that plants tend to be more efficient across the board, not just for their core products, okay? So essentially what we see is that um, if you have a, a, a plant in which their best performing product is in average uh, more, more efficient or has a higher productivity than other plants, that plant is also more efficient not just in the core product, but also in all products that follow. Okay, so this suggests that there is a, that there is a plant level 
efficiency component. It's not just that by chance, uh, firms are very productive in one product and not very productive in the rest. So if, if a firm is very productive in, the, in their best performing product, it's also more productive in other products. Now, what is interesting is that over time, the efficiency tends to move across products within plants, okay? Uh, so taking together these two observations uh, suggests that there is a common efficiency component at the plant level and support the, the plant level productivity draw in all these theories of flexible manufacturing. So for example, if you think about uh, all the papers that follows uh, Ekel and Nuri um, that, that essentially define this plant level uh, productivity draw and there is a, a productivity ladder so that a firm has a, a best performing product in terms of productivity and then the other products are just a little bit and the firms are, are a little bit less efficient in other products, okay? So I'm not gonna show the results here, but uh, because I want to focus on the next set of stylus facts. So I think this is the core of the paper where we compare the ranking variable and when, and then what we're gonna conclude is that the ranking variable is crucial, okay? So just to give you the summary of what is about to come, what we find is that, well, you know, the top sold product, the, 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 the best performing products in terms of sales are sold at higher prices okay and also are produced at higher marginal cost now if you go to efficiency to rank products you find that the top efficient products are sold actually to lower prices and produced at a lower marginal cost okay so this suggests that product quality and in particular demand is important and of course affect what is your best performing product in terms of sales okay so in particular this suggests that sales, uh, you know, the sales of a product is not only affected by efficiency, but also by demand and quality. And then I'm gonna show you some evidence, suggested evidence for this mechanism. Okay, so what we do is that, um, you know, in the next few regressions that I'm gonna show, uh, we define the best performing products in this case, in terms of sales. And then what we do is that we make a regression of the, of the sales of the best performing product, okay, of the each product. And then what I'm gonna do, so the, the dependent variable here in, the, in column one is the log of sales. And then we have a dummy for the top product, the second product, third, fourth, and, and beyond. So the, we run this firm only for the group of, of firms with at least five products, okay? So we don't have uh, survival issues um, and selection issues. And then we also control for plant year and industry year fixed effect. So all these patterns are identified within, within plants, okay? So what we see uh, in the first column, this is by construction, right? Because the, the, these dummies um, are defined in terms of sales. So of course, the best performing products in terms of sales has higher sales than the second, and then than the third, and then than the fourth, okay? So this, the first column is just by construction needs to be true. Now, column two repeats the exercise, but now it changes the, the dependent variable and now it uses the log, uh, the, the price of each product. And then what you see is that the, the best performing product in terms of sales has a higher price than the second, third, and fourth, okay? Sorry. Okay, so this suggests that, uh, you know, uh, that sales is not just about efficiency, right? Uh, so it seems to be something else. If you go to, to revenue productivity that is affected by prices, 
surprise, quite surprisingly, you don't see any pattern in terms of revenue productivity. So this means that the top performing product has no, I mean, the revenue productivity of the best performing product is not different from the second, third, or fourth. But when you go to physical productivity products in terms of sale, tend to be also the more efficient than the other products, okay? Now, if you go to marginal cost, what you see is that the best performing product in terms of sales is not only more efficient than other products, but it's also produced at a higher marginal cost. So uh, what this suggests is that, you know, this is not the, the, the sales of a product within a firm, it's not just about efficiency, but there's also other factors that that might be affecting the, the sales of the product. And in particular, because you have, do you see this ladder in terms of marginal cost where the best performing product is also the product that is produced at a higher marginal cost. This suggests that, um, that you know, product quality might be important. Okay, and quite surprisingly, you don't see anything in terms of markups. Yes, Leon? Te quedan cuatro minutos. Okay, four minutes. yes. Okay, so uh, this is the summary for sales-based uh, ranking. Now, uh, let me jump to uh, compare this. Okay, so uh, one more thing about this is that, uh, so this suggests that product quality is, a, is driving, is it likely the driving force? And then what we do to see if this is true, we replicate the, the table, but separating by for homogeneous, homogeneous and uh, differentiated products. And what we see is, let me show you the detail of this, is that, oops, Okay, so the, the link is broken, but what we see is that when we separate in homogeneous and differentiated products, is that uh, the, the the higher marginal the, the higher marginal cost in in top performing products in terms of sales is only observed when 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 we use the sample of differentiated products, but when we use homogeneous product, the best performing product does not have. Um, Uh, higher marginal cost. So this suggests that, they, uh, let me jump and compare this with the TFPQ based, um, with, the, with the ranking defined in terms of physical productivity. And what we see here is that most of the, of the patterns uh, keeps uh, similar, okay? So in particular, uh, you see the productivity ladder. And again, the column number four is by construction because we're using physical productivity to rank the product. So this, this is what we should, we, should, we should see. Now, what is interesting is that the best performing products in terms of, of efficiency also have a higher sales than the rest. But when you compare price and marginal cost, you see quite the opposite picture than what we saw when we use uh, you know, sales to define the best performing products. So in particular, what you see is that the best performing product, the, the most efficient product actually is produced at a lower marginal cost, okay? And this is reassuring because uh, what essentially this means is that you know, if you are more efficient in producing one product, then of course uh, you, you can produce it, you can offer at the, uh, at, the, at the lower marginal cost. Now, interestingly, in terms of markups, we recover this um, what what you typically would expect, you know that the, that you will you you tend to to get a higher markup in the most efficient product. But however, when you use sales for defining uh, the the top product, you don't see this pattern. Okay, 
Uh, and then we also do some exercise in terms of export, uh, the skewness of sales. For, for this, we use, um, you know, export at the destination, at the product destination level. I'm gonna just skip this because I just want to conclude with this slide. Uh, so what we find in summary is that the, the ranking variable for defining the, the, the core competence of the firm is crucial. So in particular, uh, as I told you, the, 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 top, the best performing products in terms of sales are produced at a higher price, but the top efficient product in terms the, the, the top the best performing product in terms of physical productivity is actually sold at a lower price. So you, we see this uh, this pattern. So the question is how do we explain this? Okay, and then what we argue and and what the model is about in the paper is that we're going to argue that you know us uh, when we use sales sales is biased. Uh, towards uh, high quality products, okay? So what does it mean? It means that, you know, um, typically in, 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 in all this literature, uh, we, we used to think in terms of a, of a one dimension of heterogeneity that is productivity. But now when, when firms has two dimensions of heterogeneity, in particular, how efficient you are and how good are you at producing quality, then of course, when you use sales, um, for, for defining the best performing product is not, the best performing product is not just gonna be the most efficient product, but also uh, the product in which you are, so in a, in a number, so by, um, by chance, right? Uh, so you may have a good, good, uh, two good draws of efficiency and, and product quality capability. Um, and then, of course, sales are going to be biased in, in terms of these products in which you are good at both producing at a lower cost and you're good at, at transforming the input in higher quality product. Okay, um, so we show that in, a, in the model and then we do a simulation where we actually um, show that the model uh, actually fit the, the, the patterns that, uh, that they show you in the in the in the regression so by by revenues uh, you see uh, that the top performing product uh, has higher sales and also uh, marginal cost than the other product but when you rank products in terms of physical productivity you see that okay so revenues are higher but also marginal cost is lower as I showed you in the in the regressions um, so that's it. Um, I think I, I just want to leave some some time for um, for questions and the discussion. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Alvaro. Uh, very interesting presentation. So now we have uh, time for for questions. So for the attendees, if you have any any question, please raise your hand. Uh, we will start with Filippo that has his uh, hand raising. Filippo. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, very relevant uh, uh, paper. A couple of issues, uh, maybe to uh, to give a sense of what the, what are the macro implication of this. Uh, first, uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, there is a higher skewness of sale to more competitive markets holds actually when uh, uh, when you use sales as ranking de device rather than uh, uh, total factor productivity revenue. Uh, I was wondering if you can we, we can say something on the way we should measure 
relative resiliencies to uh, GVC disruption. This could be something very relevant COVID time. The second uh, issue is uh, on the implication you just mentioned on the mercaps uh, that are not varying across product. Um, so can you extract some macro and regulatory implication out of that? So in particular, should the regulatory authorities change their benchmark to safeguard the competition? Thanks, Alvaro. Okay, uh, thanks, Felipe, for the, for the great question. So, um, so there were two questions. Uh, first, it's about um, how should we measure um, efficiency, right? Uh, to, to understand the, the resiliency of firms to, to global value chain disruptions. Um, and that's very interesting. So. Um, so I think one takeaway that you can take from this paper is that, um, you know, typically we, we, we tend to think that uh, resiliency is based on, um, on just efficiency, right? How efficient are firms? Um, and what this paper suggests is not just that, um, in terms of, for example, of sales, it's not just how efficient you are at producing products, but also how good are you, are, are you at, at, you know, at getting a customer base at you know increasing the, your, uh, uh, your your the 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 product um, the product quality if you if you want uh, because that gives you an additional dimension of um, of, of, of of you know an additional buffer for um, uh, for 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 facing you know external shocks. Now uh, that question is very interesting because uh, when you think about uh, global value chain disruptions that takes me to a different topic that is how should we measure productivity when uh, in a world of production networks, right? So when you think that, um, so uh, in all these models, firms are just isolated from other firms, but in practice, uh, firms are connected to other firms and how good are you at producing products is related to, for example, getting your, uh, the, the inputs in time uh, getting high quality inputs, uh, and in particular, you know, how, uh, how, how experience is tra transmitted from firm to firm. So I, I believe that, uh, that your question, that, that that's a great question, but I, I believe that for giving a, a, a full answer, uh, we'll need a bit more than what we're doing here. So this is a first step in that direction, but I think what we really need to understand to, to answer that question is to understand, uh, you know, um, how, Efficiency spillovers from your, the suppliers to the to the producers, uh, and I think what is important in that in for that question is that COVID actually disrupted these uh, production networks, and and also not only disrupted the inputs but also the experience, the uh, disrupted the you know the producing in time the products uh, and and in, of course increased the production cost. Um, now in terms of markups, uh, that's the second question. Um, what can we think about this? So, uh, so I think one, one finding that is a bit surprising is what we have here. I think this is what you're, you're, you're suggesting that essentially, uh, you know, markups are not very different across products. So this suggests that, um, you know, uh, this suggests to me that firms are actually, you know, pricing products in terms not, uh, I mean, the, they are looking at the, like, the, the overall demand or how much they want to, to get in terms of margin, uh, but, but this is not working as, as, as we actually believe that uh, you know, most, 
the you know most uh, models of endogenous markups, you would believe that uh, that firms will price will get the higher markups in top performing products, and you actually see that here in column six, but the ladder of uh, is quite flat, right? So if you compare the best performing product with the product with the PIP best performing products, you see that the difference is about 1.8% in terms of the, of the log, the log markup. So this is quite small. Um, so this suggests that firms are quite unresponsive to differences in, in product efficiency when they're pricing their products. And in terms of uh, regulation, uh, that suggests that at least in this sample of firms, uh, you know, uh, firms are pricing to market, are, are, are substantially pricing to market, I believe. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so if you want, you, I, will, I will interpret this as a, as a substantial uh, um, product market power. Uh, thanks, Alvaro. So we have uh, three more questions. I don't know if we would have time uh, for the three of them. So uh, Matthias Mart Mertens, do you, uh, you want to take the floor and ask the question? Uh, yes, uh, many thanks. Uh, many thanks for the interesting uh, presentation. Very nice data, actually, also. I have two questions. So first is, I actually am not fully understanding how you actually compare TFPQ across different products. So you, you, you mentioned that you estimate production functions um, using quantities on the left-hand side. So actually you should need, you, you would need to address like differences in, in, in measurement units. And even if products are measured by the same measurement units, so it's not clear how to compare productivity if you calculate, let's say numbers of washing machines and numbers of pens. So, yes. uh, um, so, so how, do, how can you actually compare product, physical productivity uh, between products? And related to this is, I think it's very crucial on which level you estimate the uh, production function um, in terms of at which level are the output elasticities estimated. So maybe you can say more on that because you assume basically then if you estimate it, for instance, as a two-digit level that uh, production technologies are, are like identical between all products within the same two-digit industry. So, so how, how do you address these issues? Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, so I'm going to give uh, quick answers. Uh, we can discuss more later on about uh, so in terms of units, yes, of course, I didn't explain fully that part, but uh, but in the way we control for that is uh, adding product unit uh, fixed effects. So everything is comparing is compared to other products in the same um, uh, in the same product unit category. Okay, so we're we're comparing the same units. Um, now, in terms of products, you're right. You're completely right. So uh, we 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 estimate the production function for aggregate product categories. Uh, of course, we would like to do it this uh, by narrow, by very narrow uh, product, uh, let's say seven digit uh, product categories. But, but the problem, of course, here is, a, is, an, is the issue of, um, of number of observations, right? So here you have, a, you, you need to make a choice, right? So you, you, you may want to derive statistics that are representative of the overall manufacturing sector, in which case you need to aggregate uh, products at a, at a higher level. Or you may pick one or two products uh, to, to, you know, um, to, to derive results. So, and of course, both strategies has shortcomings. So, for example, I could I could I could choose uh, some food products very narrowly defined for, for example, bread or something like that. And of course, there I will have like about 
800 firms, and then I could compute like a very narrowly defined. But then the question would be, how would you generalize the results? And then, of course, this this is an impossible question. So in this paper, we take the route of trying to get like a general result as general as possible. But uh, that's those are very good uh, questions. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Nicolas, you have another question, and then Marcela, if we have time. Yes. Uh, thank you, Alvaro. Super interesting. So I have this, it's, it might be a little bit technical, but the question is, so have you tried to look at the difference uh, in terms of your productivity estimates if you use your method compared to what you would obtain if you, only, if you had not as good data, right? Because what you have in Chile is amazing, I think, right? So for example, I don't know if, 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 if you look at what would you get if you just look at the, you know, at the method of the Loper, Goldberg, Hanewell, and Patnik, right? That they you know, use the scale from the single product firms to, you know, uh, to the multi-product firm in order to obtain the single product firm production function, right? Uh, and then they make some assumptions and they obtain, you know, their productivity estimates, markup estimates, but you have an additional source of information. And I was wondering, I was just curious if there's a lot of variation between what you would obtain if you only had the data that they have, right? Uh, what would you obtain and is that different to what you get when you have this super cool data, uh, this super cool source of additional information on, you know, splitting the costs across products in the, in the data from Chile? Sure. Uh, so uh, the, the answer is we don't know yet. Uh, okay. So just to be clear, we use, we follow the local candle web, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but the one thing that we don't do is that they assign input to outputs in a different way. Uh, so we haven't done that yet. Uh, then the other thing that we could do is that uh, follow, and this is what we're trying to do right now, is trying to follow Dine et al. and ORT, that they have developed different methodologies for, for deriving um, uh, from product efficiency measures. Uh, so th this is a very much work in progress, uh, but uh, yes, I agree with you. That's a, a fundamental question to see, you know, how general are our results. Okay, thanks. Perfect, so very quick to Marcela, that you have a question and yeah it's, it's a very a very specific short point so i i was uh, wondering uh, albert if you had uh, thought of looking at a more measure a more direct measure of quality because the price is a, is a proxy but it, but it's also affected by say monopolic uh, power and the, the possibility of restricting your quantities to increase price um so uh, so why not look at you have all the ingredients why not look at residual prices after that, that is to say, basically the demand shifter and the demand function. Okay, that's a very good suggestion, uh, Marcela. I think that actually at some point we tried something like that. Uh, now I don't remember why we were not, uh, yes, but that, that's something that we can definitely try to do. Yeah, I agree, by the residual demand. All right, I think there is no more time for questions. Uh, and and now we have uh, Nicolas Derou. Uh, as I said, he's going to present uh, a paper about resiliency of exporting firms. And after a trade shock, thank you, Alvaro. Uh, and so go ahead. Again, you have 20 minutes, uh, Nicolas. Make it count. Thank okay, you. You guys see my screen? Yes. Okay, so thank you so much. So as, as, as Manuel said, I'm Nicolas de Rue. I'm an assistant professor at Universidad de Los Andes. 
I'm going to talk about how resilient our exporting firms, evidence, evidence from Chavez trade war with Colombia. This is joint work with Luis Martinez at Universidad de Chicago, who's here, uh, Camilo Tovar at the IMF, and uh, Jorge Tovar also at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, not the Chile one like uh, Alvaro. Um, okay, so to before starting, let me please uh, let me thank you for the invitation. I'm super happy to be here to present this. This is this is this work is super preliminary, so we're very eager eager to hear your comments, uh, and we're still making some decisions. So any feedback that you can give us is going to be super super useful. Okay, so to motivate this, let me say that there is a large literature documenting the positive effect of exporting unfair outcomes. Right. So, for example, in quality, there's a paper by Eric Verhoeven showing that in Mexico, uh, exporting lead firms to produce higher quality goods and pay higher wages. Also, a very known, uh, well-known paper by Atkin and co-author looking at rock producers showing that, you know, the more you export, the higher quality goods you produce. There is also literature showing that firms that export tend to uh, use better technology. And of course, in productivity, there are many, many papers looking at the effects of exporting on productivity, the papers by Jan de Locker, Park et al., and then the paper by Alvaro, who's here uh, with Nico Boylanger. It, it, it shows in particular that within firms, there are productivity gains of when firms start exporting. Okay, but then this, this begs the question of what happens to firms when they lose access to foreign markets. In particular, does ceasing to export undo its positive effects? Right? Uh, is that effect of exporting symmetrical? In other words, and what? Are, what? And, and is this effect? Uh, uh, does this effect appear in the medium and in the long term? How does it look like in the medium and the long term? And we think, uh, uh, my co-authors and myself, we think that this is a hard question to answer uh, because it's hard to find exogenous sources of variation that are large enough, um, and, and furthermore, that last long enough. Right? So for example, a recent source of that type of exogenous variation to answer this question is the famous Trump shock um, that has been already been studied, but this has a problem, right? Um, that is that, you know, uh, starting in 2020, we have the COVID crisis. So disentangling the effect of the shock from the COVID crisis is particularly difficult. So in this paper, what we do is that we study the effect of Hugo Chavez trade war with Colombia on Colombian exporting firms. Um, and we're gonna do two main things. The first one is that we're gonna use aggregate data, um, trade data to document a targeted, uh, a targeted reduction in Venezuelan imports from Colombia after 2009. And we're gonna use a synthetic control, sorry, a synthetic control design uh, to do this. And then in the second part of the paper, we're gonna use a difference in different design comparing firms with varying levels of exposure based on the share of exports to Venezuela on varying levels of exposure to, to the shock. And then we're gonna couple that with custom level data at the transaction level uh, from the DIAN. The DIAN is the tax agency of Colombia. And then um, also planned level data from the manufacturing census, the Encuesta Anual Manufacturera that, that was discussed before uh, by the other panelists. Okay. And then we're gonna study the effects of the shock on, the pro on exporting survival or the probability that you're still exporting and other measures of performance, including productivity. And then we're gonna show you some results. I'm gonna show you some results uh, on heterogeneity. For example, does this effect depend on, on, on firm characteristics? For example, whether or not you were exporting to more or fewer countries uh, before, before the shock. 
Let me give you a preview of the findings. Again, uh, with a word of caution, this is very preliminary, particularly what we have on the Encuesta Non Manufacturera is super preliminary. Uh, but we do find that after 2009, Venezuela imports from Colombia decreased dramatically compared to a synthetic control. I'll show you those results. In the customs data, we find that there are persistent negative effects on the probability of exporting if you're exposed to the Venezuela chalk. Of course, this effect is driven by exports to Venezuela, and this effect is smaller for firms that were exporting more to more countries. This is, you know, almost straightforward and, and, and you would expect it. Um, we also find that exposed firms are increasing exports to other countries when they, fa they face this shock. Now in the M data, again, very preliminary, interestingly, we find no effect on productions and on production and on measure of productivity. So it would seem, right, that these firms have some, you know, a range of maneuver that they can, that they're resilient to this type of shocks, right? That exporting firms are, are special in some way. Um, and we find no effects on firm size and wages. So this is why we think, you know, this at least preliminary suggests that these firms are, are, are resilient to, to this type of shocks. But again, very preliminary. So take my words with caution. Um, okay, let me very briefly give you some context. Some of you might know about this, others might not. So until 2009, Venezuela was Colombia's second largest trade partner after the US. About 10% of yearly exports from Colombia went to Venezuela. Um, and in July uh, 2009, bilateral relationship uh, reached a breaking point because Swedish weapons originally sold to Venezuela were found in a FARC camp. FARC, the FARC, remember, was the, the guerrilla in Colombia, and we signed a peace deal with them in 2016. Um, and then also the Colombian government announced um, a military agreement with the US around that time. And then Hugo Chavez responded by breaking diplomatic relations and imposing restrictions on trade, in particular non-trade non -trade barriers. So for example, import licenses, food sanitation rules, and some currency restrictions. Then in 2010, in August, uh, relationships were established by Santos, uh, uh, President um, Juan Manuel Santos uh, of Colombia, in Colombia. Okay, so now let me let me jump to the results to show you some results, and let me first talk about the synthetic control. Right. So the aim, what we wanted to do, is document the reduction of Venezuelan imports from Colombia after 2009. We're going to use data from the UN Comtrade to measure imports to Venezuela. And we're going to implement a synthetic control approach with a donor pool of 72 countries uh, that imported consistently to Venezuela between the years 1994 and 2013. Um, and to match, to control this, to construct the synthetic control, of course, we're going to look at imports value to Venezuela. We're going to also use real GDP per capita and the, uh, and the distance, the geographical distance to Venezuela. So this is the first set of results. And let's focus on the panel on the left. Uh, this is the synthetic control in levels. So, and basically what we have plotted here in the x-axis, we have the years, and then in the y-axis, we have imports to Venezuela in millions of US dollars, right? So for example, for Colombia, we just have, you know, the plot for Colombia, that's the blue line. And in red, we have the synthetic control. And for those of you that don't know how the synthetic control uh, um, design works, basically what you do is you take those 72 countries in the donor pool and you ask, okay, let's construct a linear combination or a combination of, you know, imports from those countries to mimic as close as possible the series of Colombia in the pre-period before the policy change or the shock or the time of the shock you're interested in, right? 
So that's what you do, and you and you match whatever is going on with Colombia using you know that that uh, the, the the information from the other countries, and you and you ask, okay, what are the optimal weights that get you as close as possible to Colombia in that pre-period, and that gives you some weights, right? And then after that, you look, okay, what would have happened with or what is happening actually with that synthetic control in the post period. And then you obtain the red line in the post period, which is what you have in the right. And then you see the difference between what actually happens with the true country, let me say it that way, and the synthetic control, that's basically the treatment effect, right? Of the synthetic control methodology. So that's what's in this left plot. And you see that there is a large negative fall, right? Of the Colombia imports, imports of Venezuela from Colombia, there's a large fall um, relative to that synthetic control, right? We can summarize that same information, uh, just you know, computing that difference, and that's what we have here in the in the right plot. Um, and then you see that's what's in, in the solid line. That's and what you have here. You see a large negative effect of imports from Venezuela starting in 2009. Okay. Now the other thing that's interesting in this graph are this great are these gray lines, which is okay, how can you do inference in this synthetic control approach? <clears throat> and what we use here is the type of inference called permutation inference. And basically what we do is let's consider other countries as if those countries were the treated countries, like in Colombia. How would it look like if I were to do the exact same thing I did with Colombia, but for each one of those countries and each one of those countries is the gray line. And then the question is, is Colombia looking very different to each one of those guys? And the answer is, well, if, if the effect is truly coming from Colombia, yes, it should. And that's what you see in this graph, right? That's the intuition of this permutation inference. It's super intuitive. I like, I like it a lot, but, but then you can see it graphically there. What's happening to Colombia, it's particularly weird compared to what's going on with the other countries. So this lets me, allows me to argue that indeed something differential, something different happened to Colombia in this, in this particular period. Now, if I look at the logs, we see something very similar, both in, in, in the synthetic control plot, we see uh, a decrease in Colombian export, exports relative to the control. Also, <clears throat> Colombia looks particularly different if we look at this permutation inference. And then in the next table, what I'm gonna have is just a summary of the results. And basically what you see is an average treatment effect of, a, like, of about $5 million in the post period um, US million US dollars in the post period of imports uh, from from Colombia, right? Um, and then what I have this is this is a value over here. This R square tells me how good the synthetic control is. It's pretty high, so it's pretty good. And then the p value. I'm not gonna tell you the details between these two ways of computing the the permutation inference, but basically the p values tell you if you know that 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 point estimate is is uh, is significant. In all cases, we find that indeed it is, and, and that we can measure this effect with, with a lot of precision. Okay. Nicolas, yes. sorry, can you make it in five minutes or so? Please? No, I, 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 plan it, <laughs> I have the stopwatch. I have nine minutes. Is that okay? According that's to my watch. A, yeah, that's... A, okay, yeah, I'm going I'm to rush. I'm going to rush. But okay, <laughs> let me, yeah. Okay, sorry, Manuel, I'm going I'm to No, rush. no, it's okay. all right. Um, so let me look now at the customs data, right? So we use transaction level data from the Liang from 2002-2013. Uh, we will restrict the sample to firms exporting to any destination at least once per year in 2003 and 2005. We will call these guys established exporters. And we're gonna measure exposure to Venezuela based on the share of firm exports between 2003 and 2005 
uh, to Venezuela in what we call the pre-period. And then we got to do a very, very simple different diff type of design uh, where the outcome is going to be measured at the level I. I is the firm, T is going to be the quarter, and S is going to be the two-digit sector. You know, set, uh, firm fixed effects, uh, quarter time sector fixed effects, and then the typical um, diff and diff term. We're going to be interested in this coefficient tau. Uh, that's just the interaction of the exposure that changes in the cross section, and then the the, the a dummy that gets turned on uh, in the in the third quarter of two thousand nine. Okay, and then of course we can split this 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 dummy uh, in a leads and lags indicator, right? For an event study type of design that allows us to look at you know the dynamics of the effects, but also to see if we have parallel trends in the pre period, and that's what I plotted here, right? In the x-axis, again, I have, I have the quarters and the y-axis, I have the coefficient, the point estimate and a 95% confidence intervals. We don't see much going on before 2007. Uh, and then in 2007, we start to see a small decline in uh, the coefficients in, in the coefficient, but then this is not significant. I, I forgot to mention what the outcome is in this regression. What the outcome is, is just a dummy equal to one if the firm ex exporting in that particular quarter, uh, in that particular quarter. And then we start seeing that starting in 2003, this starts to become significant, consistent with the idea that these firms exposed to Venezuela are less likely to be exporting. And we also see from here that this effect is persistent. Um, so how does this look like in the typical defensive exercise? That's what we have here, right? That this is the dummy I mentioned before. We find a negative and significant effect on the probability of exporting if you're a firm more exposed to Venezuela. This is robust to different sets uh, of time fixed effects, depending on the sector, depending on the size of the firm, or even if I do a triple interaction of time, sector, and size fixed effects, we find very similar results. And if we split the dummy of the defendant, we split it in three, right? What happened between 2007 and 2009, and then between 2009 and 2010, that's what you have in column five. We see that the, the action is actually coming, as you would have guessed from the previous figure, that's coming from what's going on after uh, uh, the second quarter of, 2000, of 2009. Okay, now very briefly, some results, we have others, but on heterogeneity is how does the effect change depending on the number of, car of countries uh, to which you were exporting at the beginning of the period. And then we see that's in the first column that you know the, the effect of being exposed to Venezuela is negative and significant, but the more you're exporting to other countries, the effect is smaller. Right? basically consistent with the idea that there is substitution, that if you are exporting to Venezuela, you're exposed to the shock, then you can export to those, other, to those other countries. That's what you would expect. We don't find much in terms of the number of regions to which you were exporting or the number of products you were exporting. Um, then if I put all of these guys together in the same regressions, we find that the one thing that matters in terms of resilience, of, of, resilience, of exporting survival is the number of countries to which you're exporting uh, before before the shock. Okay, that's um, I that's on the end data. I'm gonna uh, sorry on the on the end data. So remember, we have we have established two facts. The first one is, you know, Venezuela did have this policy to affect imports from Colombia, and firms exposed to that to Venezuela are less likely to export in the future. Now, what's going on with firms' um, uh, performance measures, right? So we use data from Colombia manufacturing census from 2003 to 2013. We merge this with the Diana Administrative Customs data, and we use the share of exports to Venezuela between 2003 and 2005 as a measure of plants' exposure to the trade war. 
And then the first thing I want to show is that in the AM, we see this first stage, right? The probability of exporting starts to fall in 2009 if you're exposed to, if you're exposed to the Venezuela shock, right? And very interestingly, if we look at the share of production exported, and this is really important, that also falls for firms that are um, exposed to Venezuela. And we think this is important because in the AM, we, we remember in the DM, we only see you if you export. In the AM, we get to see you, we get to see you always, and we get to see your production. And starting in some years, we can see how much of that production you know, was exported or not. And then we see that this in the AM indeed shows up, right? That indeed we see an effect a negative effect on the probability of exporting more of your production uh, if you're exposed uh, to Venezuela. Okay, very briefly in, 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 the, in the three minutes I have left, let me show you some results on, on firm performance and first on labor. So we find negative coefficients all over the place. So for example, in the total number of workers, white collar workers, blue collar workers, uh, in the average wage paid, white collar wage paid, and blue collar wage paid, we find a negative coefficient, but most of the time we cannot measure that coefficient with precision, unfortunately, right? Only for white collar, for the white collar wage do we find a negative uh, coefficient that's significant at the 5% five, uh, level. Remember, these results are preliminary. Uh, we obtained them in, in, in the last month, um, but, you know, at least this to us suggests that we don't see that much action in in the labor dimension. Uh, let me show you some results on terms of production and inputs used. If I look at total production, again, the coefficient is negative, uh, but nothing is measured with precision in this table. In logs, we don't see much. In total inputs, uh, imported inputs used, negative, but we don't see that it's not precise. The same in logs. Uh, and in terms of total materials used, difference to the imported ones, right? Uh, again, we don't see much, right? And to finish up, and I might, um, that the last set of results, again, super preliminary, uh, some results on productivity, right? So I can only show you results using the Olean, Pigs, and Levinson and Petrin uh, measures. This, um, this, you know, the, the, the product series we use here uh, were deflated using a, a, a production uh, price index, very aggregated, uh, but then we don't find much using these two measures. Of course, we know that there are other measures, for example, ACF, uh, uh, Ackerberg, Caves, and Fraser, and there are others, um, Marcella and I and, and, and Eric Verhoeven have a paper on productivity estimation that we also wanna implement in this case. Uh, but yeah, I, I owe you that those results, but at least for the Olympics measure and the Levinson and Petrin and Petrin measure, we don't find uh, big effects. So, and just to open up the conclusion, what we think uh, are the next steps is that, of course, we can extend the time period and maybe go to 2019 or even 2020 and see, look at the persistence of these effects. Uh, we need to think of other performance measures in the AM, in particular, other productivity measures, but we're also open to other measures of performance related to what Filippo was mentioning at the beginning of the talk. And we're also interested in studying heterogeneity in the AM. How do the results depend on time? Uh, right? Maybe the results, the, the effects start showing up late in time, and how do the results depend on whether or not uh, you're exporting to other countries? And that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicolas. A very interesting uh, paper. Now we we have uh, time for a few questions. Uh, if uh, if you want to go ahead, Philippe, I also have uh, one that 
maybe uh, I'll ask and then Filippo and then you answer uh, and then we go ahead with some more. So I was wondering about the, the last uh, uh, part of your presentation, which unfortunately have the very uh, uh, preliminary results, the effects on productivity, which is a bit puzzling and firm size. But I was uh, wondering, maybe you haven't done that, but it would be interesting to see whether Uh, the, to see the effects on productivity and firm size conditional on the extent of uh, uh, the increase of exports to other destinations. So how, how, how was the, the productivity, the effect on productivity on uh, conditional on the, the, the substitution of uh, destinations? Uh, comparing one firm that didn't substitute uh, uh, and one that did substitute to other destinations, for instance. And also conditional on the degree of exposition to Venezuela. And also, that this is just a comment, it'd be interesting to see the effect on, on firms exposed to Venezuelan inputs, because that was also cut off. So that would be nice to see and whether there is some uh, uh, a relationship with uh, uh, those exporting firms. So, uh, Filippo, go ahead and... Thank you very much. A very interesting piece, uh, uh, Nicola. Uh, just two quick questions. First, uh, yeah, as Manuela was saying, Manuela was saying, you know, the, the, the impact of productivity, no impact of productivity is strange. I was wondering, you know, whether your shock is really perceived as permanent or maybe it was a transitory. Actually, I was a bit puzzled by the fact that you said that this happened in 2009, but 2010 was reversed already. So just clarify to us, please, what was the nature of the shock. Second of all, a couple of, uh, you know, there are maybe, uh, again, the presentation would be Uh, uh, gain by uh, distinguishing what is expected and not, uh, and not expected, in a sense that there are a few conclusions that seems obvious to me. You say firm will di diversify their exports, the most diversified are the least affected. You know, what is expected and unexpected in your uh, findings? So thanks. Uh, yes, so let me, let me, maybe I can, I can take care of those two questions and then, and then we can... Uh go with other ones. So related to what you were saying, Manuel, yes, I thank you so much. I completely agree with, with your suggestions. Uh, we need to look in the end. We think that what I just, I, what I show you are just, you know, plain, simple average effects. Uh, and we think that for sure there must be some sources of heterogeneity here. And that's what we're working on. Uh, as you mentioned, for example, in terms of size, in terms of the level of exposure, what you have right now is just, you know, the average, you know, a simple dummy for level of exposure, but maybe, you know, There are differential effects dependent if, if you are, for example, in the lowest uh, quartile of size, right? Uh, so yes, I completely agree with your comment. It's also interesting to see what's going on with input imports uh, with exposure related to input to inputs. That's a, yes. a very good suggestion, Manuel, and we, we we will definitely look into that. So thank you so much. But yeah, we we I think myself, uh, my co-authors and myself, we think that you know this is hiding different dif uh, heterogeneity across dimensions, and and that's definitely the place uh, in, uh, we're working on right now. Uh, so going back, so and let me know, Manuel, if, 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 if I answered your question, but, but uh, thanks a lot for, for, for your, your suggestions. 
And Filippo, okay, so we, two questions on the persistence of the shock and what is expected and not expected. So my impression is that the shock, you know, in the newspapers was a shock that was, you know, shorter, right? But for us, for us economists, this is, this is pretty cool. But in the data, what, we sh what, what I just showed you is that we're finding persistence, persistent effects, right? So if, if, if we go back to, you know, the first diff and diff, this, this effect at least lasts for four years. And that's, you know, that's quite long. And then, you know, I would bet we're working right now on, on extending the, the, the data, uh, uh, the years of the data, but I'm betting that this, you know, the, this effects will be persistent. Um, also, if you look at the synthetic control, right, even if in the newspaper, the shock was transitory, remember the synthetic control that we, uh, is over here, you know, we see that the, you know, imports from Colombia are below the synthetic control for many years, you know, up to 2013, at least four years uh, from the moment of the shock. So, you know, not in the newspapers, the shock was not persistent, but in the data, the data is suggesting is showing that the effect is persistent. Now, what is expected, expected and not expected, and that's, and what is obvious and not obvious, and there, Filippo, my, uh, what, my answer is, yeah, I mean, most of what I show you today is quite expected, but, you know, as an empirical economist, I think that, you know, theoretically it is expected, but there is a lot of value to me. The most important value is, okay, what's the size of these things? Right? Is it there in the data? Can we show that this is indeed happening uh, empirically? Right? Even if we were expecting it uh, from a theoretical standpoint, and think about you know the literature on the effects of exporting. Right? That's an obvious question, and we would expect that exports have a positive effect on 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 on, on productivity. And then some people have come, like Alvaro, and said, "Yeah, that's in the data. We see it there, and this is the size of that thing." Right? So we think even if what we're showing is somewhat expected, we think that putting numbers to that and showing the magnitude and showing that that effect is there and not only there, but causally identified there is a value. Uh, so that's where we think that, 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 that we're contributing to this, to this literature. But I agree with your point that, well, perhaps when we dig a little bit more into the heterogeneity that Manuel was suggesting, hopefully we'll find things that are unexpected and then we'll make you even happier, Philippe. So, so yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your comments. Alvaro, uh, go ahead, please. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so this is a very interesting data and paper. So I, I was wondering, okay, so um, what is surprising to me about this paper is that, you know, after losing access to Venezuela in uh, 2009, uh, you see that after two years, they, they haven't regained access to, to export markets, right? So it's like, a it's like a permanent, it's a shock that has a permanent effect. And that's uh, quite surprising to me because I would have expected that once you lose access to Venezuela, perhaps you start exporting to a different country, right? So you change the, 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 the mix. So I was wondering, I, I mean, one suggestion that I would like to see is that if you could perhaps uh, differentiate the, between firms that lose, that, that, that after the shock stopped exporting at all, and, and, all, and the other firms that are, you're not showing, I guess, that are firms that are continue exporting, but to see the, the intensive margins in terms of the number of destinations. So perhaps they lost access to Venezuela, but they started exporting to a different uh, destination. That's one possibility. Now, in terms of the last result on productivity, uh, that's perfectly consistent with firms um, 
you know, focusing their resources in their best performing products, right? Uh, so that mm. might be one explanation why productivity goes up, uh, although it's not uh, statistically significant, but, but that's very, very consistent. Uh, so I have an, uh, uh, other few comments. Uh, perhaps I can write you an email because I, I know that we're just on time. Yes, um, yes, we yeah, are. Very uh, interesting paper. We have a, we are tight on, on time, so go ahead, uh, uh, Nicolas, very, as short very, as you can. As short as you can. So one, one sentence, please do send that, that email, Alvaro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I agree with uh, all you said. We, I agree with all you said. And then we do see, we've, we've looked at a little bit into that. And then we see, as I showed you before, like, the main effects, you know, is, is this is worse for firms that are having trouble to find new destinations. And if in the past you had, you, you had more connections in other destinations, then you will suffer less from the shock, of course. And then I completely agree with you on the productivity interpretation that you just mentioned. But yeah, do please send that email. I don't want to uh, uh, take too much time. Thank you, Alvaro. Thanks a lot. All right. Great. I think uh, we finished almost on, on time. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, it was great uh, to listen to you guys. And Filippo, uh, if you want to say something, go, just well, go just, ahead. Uh, you know, as Manuela, as Marcela was showing to us, I mean, this is, uh, of course, we have a lots of common research interest. We have uh, ambition on the data. And uh, so I really encourage everybody to really work on the extension of company to Latin America. And of course, uh, to keep up the good research and the good exchange of views. So thank you very much for participating to this Proud Talk. And, you know, stay tuned on component activities and really hope that, you know, the Latin America initiative will, uh, will, will grow fast soon, okay? To everybody, stay safe and, and, and you know, I'll see you soon, Healthy. guys. Bye-bye and healthy, that's right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Take care. Ciao, Marcella. Hasta luego. Ciao. Hasta pronto. Ciao.